Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their calloused hearts comes iniquity. With evil imagination, they have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the whole earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and they drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. They are free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely I have in vain washed Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. All day long I am afflicted, and every morning brings about new punishments. If I would have spoken like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, I was greatly troubled until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. For surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed and completely swept away by tears. They are like a dream when one awakes. For you, Lord, when you arise, you will despise them like fantasies. When my heart was grieved I was senseless, and my soul embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You uphold my right hand. Your counsel guides me, and afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my life and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish, and you will destroy all who are unfaithful to you. As for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge, and I will tell of all your deeds. Amen. All right. Good morning. Jill, that was wonderful. Thank you so much. I did have my first job at Subway, so I'm familiar with this. But it is making me a little self-conscious because nobody likes a waiter who talks this much, okay? When they come to your table, nobody likes that. Uh, good morning, everybody. My name is Cole. I'm the pastor here, one of our elders. And uh, this morning, I want to see if you know something. This is a little experiment. There's a phrase that's a really great phrase that's become almost like a Christian cliche. And I, I, I bet you know it. I'm going to say the first half. You say the second half. God is good... I knew you would know it. And if I said all the time, okay, people love this phrase, and it, it, it is a great phrase. And I'll tell you who really loves it. Coaches love this phrase. They go into a locker room. Kerwin, I'm surprised you don't say it more. People, they go into a locker room to rile everybody up, and they say it, and it's the call and response. And I was speaking at a camp a while back, and actually, they were using it as one of those things to quiet down everybody, you know, like with preschool teachers, like, if you can hear me, clap twice. But they did it with that. It was like, God is good all the time, and then everybody had to be quiet. And I was like, I'm not sure that's 
the way it's supposed to be used. But it is kind of an insight into how these phrases have a life of their own. They, they, you can have people that are not Christians, they don't believe anything about that saying that might know exactly what you're talking about when you say that. They may know how to respond to that phrase, but the question is, do you really believe it? Do you believe what that phrase says? Because it's a pretty astounding thing to say that God is good all the time. All the time. I mean, it would be easier for like, he's good the vast majority of the time, or slightly more than half the time, he is good. But to say he is good all the time is something that is so easy to say, so hard to believe. And I want you to think about that phrase because the version of that that was that phrase in the, the time of David and Israel is how we begin this psalm. God is good to Israel, especially to those who are pure in heart. God is good to Israel, and everybody would have thought, to those who are pure in heart. It is like something that every Israelite would have known. And they would have said it without thinking about it. They would have said, that's just what you believe, that's just who God is. But if you take a step back, what our psalmist does for us this morning is, he's willing to be honest enough to say, is that really true? Is that really true? See, one of the great things about the Psalms, and we've been spending the last few weeks in the Psalms, and this is the last week. We've been looking through a lens into the Psalms. The Psalms are amazing for so many things. One, one person said that the Psalms are like an anatomy of every part of the soul. Because it will hit you wherever you are, whatever you're going through, whatever emotions you're feeling, it will give you a guide to work through. And we've been looking at the Psalms through the, le- through the lens of emotions, And one of the things we've been talking about is the emotions in the Christian life, you you handle them differently than almost anybody else handles them. So inside the church, outside the church, one of the predominant ways in our culture, especially today, to deal with emotions is to say your emotions, your gut, the things that rise up in you, those are the most true things about you. Those are the things you should listen to. That's, That's the true you, unimposed on by other people, you should listen to that. And of course, we, we know there's another approach to the emotions which says, actually, your emotions are not trustworthy. And if you're going to make a big decision or something, or if you're going to give somebody advice, you should wait until you have a clear head. Do not make decisions based on emotions. And it, it reminds me when I hear that, when we get this kind of Christian stoicism kind of thing, like no emotions to cloud what God might be doing. It reminds me of this revival that was taking place in Britain right after World War II. And somebody came to this famous pastor and they're like, you've got to come see this revival. People are giving their lives to Christ and it's just amazing. And he said, and there's no emotion, no emotion. And he's trying to play up like this isn't just spur of the moment. This isn't just getting carried away. These people are making cold, rational decisions. And the guy responds. He says, so, so you're telling me that people realize that they are in danger of spending eternity away from God, that they've encountered the living and holy God, that they believe that he sent his son to die for them in their place, and they get to spend eternity with God forever being saved, and there's no emotion? That's not a legitimate conversion. So, so what is the role of emotions? The, the Bible teaches us not to 
deny the emotions. It also teaches us that the emotions can be deceptive. What the Bible has for us is we need to engage the emotions. Because the way that you and I are designed, the way our hearts work, is your heart, the seat of your emotions and your desires and your longings and what your soul loves and worships, is designed in a way that you will worship something. It's just a question of what. What will you worship? It's, it's, it's not if you'll worship, it's what will you worship? What are you currently worshiping? And what the emotions do is they point us down to that deep level to say, this is what you truly love. In our psalm today, we get like a front row seat to watch somebody engage their emotions. And in fact, I want to resist just calling this one emotion because it's kind of a blanket psalm. See, the problem in this psalm is he says, God is good, truly God is good in Israel to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, as in, that's all well and good, but but my perception of the world is actually slightly different right now. As for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped because I was envious of the arrogant. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, I wanted to join them. Right? This is, I, I hope you're willing to be honest this morning because this is something that everybody has thought. And let me put it in slightly different words. If sinning is wrong... Why is it so much fun, right? It's kind of like foods, you know, like if vegetables are so good for me, why do they taste so terrible? And if dessert is bad, then what's going on here? If sin leads to death, why do the people that are running after it often live such great lives? That, that's what the psalmist is saying is like, I have been doing everything I can. I've been living the right way. I've been doing what I, I feel like I'm supposed to do. And I look around and everybody else is having a much better time than I am. This is really honest. See, it, it's part temptation that we're dealing with here. There's the temptation of, I look around and I see what's going on and I'm like, it would be better for me if I would just do whatever I want to do. Just live it up a little bit. It's a lot more fun to do that than to serve God. But what you find out pretty quickly, again, is there's actually something underneath temptation. T temptation is, is neutral in the way that it comes into our heart, but, but underneath every temptation is a doubt, is a doubt. You know what this person's doubt is? Maybe God isn't as good as I've been told that he is. Maybe God doesn't run the universe quite as well as he's supposed to. You know, maybe God isn't watching out and rewarding the righteous after all. See, see, the killer thing of every temptation is the little seed of doubt on the inside. And it, it reminds me of those fruits. There's a whole family of fruits, cherries, peaches, nectarines, that the fruit is great, but the pit actually has cyanide inside. Like that kind of cyanide, like the spy kind of cyanide, that you crack your tooth open and die kind of cyanide. That the pit of every temptation is a deadly doubt about the character of God. And what that doubt is going to reveal in our psalm this morning is that this psalmist is showing us what to do when you find yourself at odds with God. When you find yourself doubting Him, not agreeing with Him, wondering what He's doing, when you're just at odds with God, what should you do? The first thing we learn in this psalm is... Go to God. 
Okay, this sounds like a total duh statement, but it is so hard to do in the moment. Chances are when you're at odds with God, your first resort is to do anything but go and deal with it with God. It's to go somewhere else with something else or someone else, and most temptation actually ends up being talking behind God's back, which of course can never really happen, but we direct all of our energy away from God to try to find something else that will make sense of what we're experiencing. But, but this psalmist, he says in verse 16, when I thought about this, when I thought to understand it, it seemed to me a very wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and I discerned the end. I want you to note that he goes to the sanctuary. Okay, this is, so a little history here. This is Asaph. Asaph is a contemporary of David, somebody that David had put in charge of the music and the worship in his kingdom. And if you remember, the temple is not built until David's son Solomon builds it. So this is not the glorious, wonderful, gold-plated temple. This is the wilderness tabernacle that was set up in the days of Moses. It's been traveling around for 400 years. It is not really an impressive sight. It's not one of those places where you go in and the grandeur and the beauty of it just draw your heart and mind to God. Instead, he goes to the tabernacle, he goes to the sanctuary looking for something else. He, he goes to the sanctuary looking for the presence of God. Now, I, I mention that because when, when he comes into the presence of God, he is reminded that for 400 some odd years, God has been present in this sanctuary. And he has been guiding his people. He has been leading his people. He has been speaking to his people. And so he's like, I am going straight to the source, to where God dwells. The other thing I want you to see here, though, is he's not just saying, I went to church. Okay, so the, we th I went to the sanctuary. I went to a worship service. Worship services are great. You're at one now. We love this. But, but here's the thing. It's possible to go to church and avoid God. Now, you can come to church. You can even sing. You can listen to the sermon and do all of that so that you never have to encounter God. And I want you to know, he's not just saying, so I went to a church service. He's saying, I went and I cleared everything away so that it's just me and God. And then I understood things. See, the most powerful, transformative thing in your life, the area where your emotions are going to be engaged and changed, the area where the loves of your heart are going to be redirected, is when you encounter the living God. In fact, that's really the only place that you can be permanently changed to love what you were designed to love. So he goes into the sanctuary. He's doing business with God. He's opening his heart to God. He's having this conversation with him, and God completely changes him from the beginning of this psalm to the end. And, and he does that by showing him three things. One, he gives him a new perspective. Two, he gives him a new beginning. And three, he gives him a new desire. He gives him a new desire. So the first thing that happens is he goes to God and he gets a new perspective. He goes into the sanctuary, and when I was reading this, I was reminded that there's many encounters in the Bible where somebody does this. They're in trouble, they're mad at God, they're wandering, they're at odds with him, and they go to his presence, 
and they're reminded of something really important about God. In fact, later, the prophet Isaiah goes into the sanctuary and he, and he sees the heavenly vision of the temple of the Lord. And the glory of the Lord fills the place and immediately Isaiah realizes, I am a person of small account. God is great. I am not. I am a man of unclean lips. He says, I should not be here right now. And of course, God then cleanses him with a burning coal, and he puts his words in his mouth. And later he says this in Isaiah chapter 55. He says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that the Lord might have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And here's where the passage is going to start to sound familiar. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. See, the first thing that he needs in this perspective is he needs to remember that his thoughts and God's thoughts are not the same. Part of the reason that we misunderstand what God is doing is because his ways are higher than our ways, right? In fact, if everything God did just made perfect sense to us and we're like, that's exactly how I would draw it up, you, you probably are not worshiping the living God because he, his ways are higher than ours. And, and it's not just like, oh, God has a higher IQ than we do. Like God is doing you know, advanced calculus and we're just stumbling through algebra. It's, it, it's actually entirely different. His, his thoughts and his ways point to the fact that we, we have a priority difference with God. So one of the things you see in this passage, and the reason I read the verses before it is because this passage is always plucked out of context, just like God has great thoughts, we have small thoughts. It tells us the big difference in this passage, that God is working this grand plan throughout history, and his priority is that people who are far from him would be drawn near to him, that people who are walking in ways that are wicked would come and turn and the Lord would have compassion on them and he would draw them in and he would be their God. His, his plan is that even though people have rebelled against him, he is going to pardon them and adopt them into his family. That's a plan you and I could never wrap our mind around if God had not told us that. In fact, it, it's a plan that requires such power and such wisdom and such love and such goodness, it's not a surprise that we don't share that priority when we're at odds with God like he does. In fact, the psalmist here, when, when he realizes what's happened, he's said all this to God and, and he realizes, I'm the one who's been thinking wrongly. He says kind of this self-critique. In verse 21, he says, when my soul was embittered, and when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards God. This is kind of an odd thing to say. It definitely is odd for us since we as a society, typically when we think of animals, we think these like enlightened, perfect spiritual beings. That is not what they thought about animals in the Bible. They, they thought about animals as being kind of a base layer. They basically have natural instincts and that is it. They have one-track minds. They just do whatever comes natural to them, and they think nothing of the big picture. That's the picture of beasts in the Bible. Now, I learned this at a young age because my parents 
when I was a kid, had this dog named Daisy, who made me wonder if dogs actually can be possessed by demons, because this dog was the worst dog ever. Um, She was some kind of mix, terrier, shih tzu mix, and lived up to it, and she really had this problem that whenever you would do something she didn't want, you'd pick her up and throw her outside or whatever, when she would come back in, she would find your spot and pee in it. (laughs) I mean, it was uncanny. This dog is actually pretty smart because if it was, you know, my dad and he did something, next time she was in there, that chair you always sit in, yeah, go check it now. Go check what's on there now. Your pillow, yeah, been up there, made a little visit. And it was kind of astounding. You're like, you know who feeds you, right? Like you, you know who gives you shelter, gives you a, 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 a moderately sized cage to live in at night. But it doesn't matter. She's a beast. She just has one track. If there's something going wrong in my life, it's your problem. If there's something that isn't the way I want it to be, the problem must be with you. And in a sense, she's probably right. We didn't really train her, so we're just getting her natural instincts. And and what the psalmist realizes in this psalm is like, we come basically the same way, right? On our own, we tend to think if something is not going well in our life, it must be God. It must be God's fault. The problem cannot be in here. The problem must be out there. He's like, what happened was I, I realized when I came into the sanctuary and I got this new perspective, I realized that my problem, my, my priorities are not the same as God's. I've been assigning all this blame to God when it was I who was misunderstanding what was going on in the world. The second thing that he realizes in this new perspective is he realizes that it's not just God's priorities that are different than ours. God's vision is different than ours. God actually sees the world and time and everything in it in a way that is very hard for us to comprehend. There, the, the second most important word in this psalm is in verse 17, and it's again in verse 24, and it's the word afterward. In verse 17, it says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. These are the unrighteous people. And and that word there is just the word afterward. It's like, I I was able to see their afterward. And again, in verse 24, then he, he contrasts it, and he's like, and then God showed me my afterward. And and, and when he sees that God's vision is actually the big picture, God is playing the long game, the eternal game in the universe, he realizes what looks to be true now, if you take the long view, is not what things will be in the future. In fact, they are peaking right now, but their afterward is destruction. And I am suffering now, but my afterward is glory with God forever. I, I'm thinking about this yesterday because Silas, I think Silas is in here. I don't mean to call you out, Silas, but he was preparing for his first football game. So he came over and had his pads and everything, and it got me all jazzed. I mean, it's been a long time since I've played football, but it's the first week of college football. And anyway, I was telling Laura all these glory day stories after Silas left. And, but, it, but it reminded me, the interesting thing about when you're in junior high and you're playing football is that the people that are really good in junior high are often nowhere to be found by the time you get to be a junior or senior in high school. Like, if you look at the stat sheets for people that are just killing it in the seventh grade, and then you see who's killing it when they're a junior, it's almost never the same people. 
And I can tell you why in three words. Growth spurts coming. <laughs> Growth spurts coming. The guys that were the biggest, they, they had already grown in junior high, were awesome. And you know what happened when they were seniors? They were the same size and they were sitting on the bench. I was on the bench both times, actually. It was a little, <laughs> it was too little, too late. That's why I had so much time to think about this, actually, when I was in... <laughs> I, w I went to college as a mathlete, not as an athlete. <laughs> but, but the problem is, if somebody would pull you aside right now, and you, you see this? This isn't going to be true forever. These people that are described in the first half of this psalm, these people that everything is going well for them, everything is going right, their lives are wonderful, just give us some time. Just give us some time. You need to take the eternal perspective that God has. There's a spiritual growth spurt that happens for the people of God that is astounding. It's like C.S. Lewis said, if you could see the people walking around now like they will be in eternity, you would fall on your face in terror at what they look like then. Because every person you see is an eternal person who is going to be transformed by the glory of God in Christ to look like the way they were designed to look. And you may not see it now, but if you give it long enough, you would be amazed at what you see. See, the psalmist realizes, and we're supposed to realize along with him, trusting God means that we adopt his priorities, his vision. We believe him when he says, hey, in the long run, you think that they're benefiting now, you stick near me and see what happens. He also gives them a new beginning. He gives them a new beginning. And this is actually the most important word in this psalm, which is in verse 23. So he says all this stuff to God. He says, you know what? I think I almost joined these people, and their life is a lot better, and I don't think you're running things very well, and... You know, I really feel like unrighteousness pays in the short run, and I wouldn't have designed the world that way. Can you imagine if you had had this conversation with your boss, what the following conversation would be like? See, see, this person isn't just saying these things to us. This person is saying these things to God. And one of the things that's so amazing about the Psalms is people can talk like this to God. They can say all these things like, this is how I'm feeling, and this is what's going on in my mind, and this is what's going on in my heart, and then turn around, and you know what God does next? It says, nevertheless, I am always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. Afterwards, you will receive me into glory. This, this word, nevertheless, is one of the great gospel words in the Bible, in fact, in that word alone, you can sum up almost everything that's true about how we engage with God. Your life thus far, nevertheless, if you turn to God, it is forgiveness and glory and love and grace for the rest of your days. See, when this person comes in, he, he comes in honest enough to tell God how he's feeling. And, and unless you're honest enough to tell how, God how you're feeling, you'll never change. If you go through your life and you basically just dress it up and button it up and only pray to God in the King James and never let God know what's going on in your heart, then don't be surprised if nothing ever goes past that point. See, what happened was the psalmist was honest enough and vulnerable enough that he met with the living God and he gave him everything that he could handle and God said, I'm still here. I still love you. 
I'm still ready to walk with you. He takes him by the hand. I think about this line, and, and, I, and I wonder if there's a story in the New Testament that's supposed to call our memory to this psalm. It's the story of the prodigal son, where the father has two sons, and the, the younger son goes off, and he wastes the father's money, and he basically says, you know, you, you're as good as dead to me, so just give me the inheritance now. And when he comes back, they throw this giant party, and it's this awesome story, but, but don't forget the last part of it, where the older brother comes back. And he's been working out in the field, and he comes and he hears music at the house. And he comes up to the door and he asks his servant, what's going on in there? And the servant says, your brother came home. And he's like, oh. his dad comes out. He's like, I have slaved away for you for years, and you've never done anything for me. In fact, I've never even gotten as much as a small goat with my friends, and you killed the fatted calf for this son of yours. And do you remember what the father says to him? He doesn't just say, you know what, we're throwing a party for you next weekend. He doesn't say, you know what, you need an attitude adjustment. He says, I am always with you. Everything I have is yours. Right? That's his response to the older brother who basically is like this psalmist. He's been running on self-righteousness earning his favor, doing the right thing, and expecting life to go well. And when he's confronted with the fact that it doesn't, the problem is with the father. And the father's response to him is, I'm here. I'm with you, always. Isn't that enough? See, the third thing that the psalmist, the, the psalmist realizes here is he, he gets a new desire. He gets a new desire, like the older brother who comes back the way that God reframes things for him is stunning. He says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Can you see this transformation? It was like, God is good, but actually things are not going well. I might just join the unrighteous people too. There's nothing on earth that I desire besides God. What a transformation that took place in this person's heart. Their values have changed. Their desire, their loves have changed. And he says, my heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you, that'd be everybody in verses 1 through 17, they will perish. You will put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but, but as for me... Right In verse 2, it's, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. But now he says, but as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all his works. I want to point out something to you here in this last point that is subtle, but it makes all the difference in the way that we live with God. This, this psalmist, when he said, God is good... The way that he interpreted that phrase is something along the lines of God is good means God does good things. Right? God does things that I like. God brings about good things in my life. God orchestrates the universe in a way that I would look at and say, that is positive, that is good. At the end of the psalm, what he realizes, though, is the phrase God is good actually means something different. The phrase God is good in the end means God is everything good to me. God himself is 
good. And, and if that's the truth, then the best thing you can do is not have different things happen to you. The best thing you can do is actually be near to and get more of God. That is what is good. So he says, God is good, and his, his thinking totally shifts from not just God is going to bring about good things, because if you become a Christian because you think it's going to work out well for you by your standards, you're going to say exactly what he says in verse 13. I have done all of this in vain. It has not worked out exactly the way I wanted it to. It has not brought all the things that I really desired in life. But if you take it the way that he means at the end, God is good. The only good thing is God. And you give yourself to him, you will never ever have anything that you can't look at and say, but God was in it. God was in it. God is my good. You can say with the psalmist that there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you because you are all my good. The fundamental thing that separates true Christianity, biblical trusting in Christ from kind of going through the religious motions is this difference. Do you think that what you do earns you something good? Or do you think that just being brought back into the presence of God is the greatest good? Right? As Jamie quoted earlier from Romans 5, this is one of the most underrated verses in the Bible. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, if, if your problem was just transactional, that, that would be an okay understanding to say, and so I will trust God so that he will do good things for me. But, but our biggest problem is not transactional. Our biggest problem is relational. The biggest problem in the universe is that you and I are separated from God by our sin. The biggest problem is not that sin brings terrible consequences. The terrible consequences are nothing compared to being separated from God for all of eternity. The best thing that can happen to us is the way Peter puts it. Christ died once and for all, the godly for the ungodly, that he might bring them back to God. See, that, that's the undoing of everything that happened in the beginning. Adam and Eve's sin, which leads to death, but not physical death immediately. Instead, what happens is they're pushed out of the garden, away from the presence of God, and you spend the entire Bible basically getting back to the presence of God in the end. The fix in the gospel is that Jesus came and died for us, not to just go back to our daily lives without the guilt of our sin. The, the gospel is he came and solved your biggest problem, that you could not be in the presence of God, you could not relate to him, you could not have him as your father until you have Jesus' death on your behalf so that you could be back in his presence forever. So at the end of this psalm, what we realize is my greatest good is to be near God. And the worst thing that could ever happen to me is to be separated from God, so much so that Bad things happening in my life with God are better than good things happening in my life without God. That's the change that's, that's been made in the psalmist's heart to where he can say, my heart and my flesh, everything I have could fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. See, the end of this psalm is, is actually the whole trajectory of the psalms go from duty to delight. If, if, you, if you look at God through the lens of duty, I've done my part, have you done yours? You will never be satisfied in God. But, but if you look at your relationship with God like, 
I was made to love and enjoy and treasure you, nothing can happen to you outside of God's hand. That, that God himself, in the end, promises that he will bring about a day when no matter what has happened before, you are fully satisfied in him, that there is justice, that every tear is wiped away, and you will be with him forever. So the psalmist arrives at the end of this psalm saying, truly, God is good. But he means something totally different now. God is good to Israel, especially those who are pure in heart. I'll just leave you with this. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. They will see God. And the last vision we get in the Bible is not a picture of all the wonderful things that will happen in heaven, and there will be wonderful things. And, and, and not just like all the architecture and stuff that's mentioned, all that is good. The, the final vision you get, though, and I think this is the point of everything that's led up to it, is we will see his face, and he will write his name on our forehead, and he'll be close enough to wipe away all the tears with his hand, and our eternity will be spent face-to-face with him, the greatest thing we could ever imagine. And you can start that now. You can start that now. Face-to-face with him forever. Truly, God is good to those who are pure in heart because they get to see him. They get to be with him. They can say with the psalmist, there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. At the end, the psalmist basically is saying, if you think sinning is fun, which it is temporarily, You should try God. You should try the most satisfying thing in the universe, being a child of God. That's ours in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you designed us in a way that actually the greatest thing for us is you. That any other substitute falls short of what it's like when our heart and our soul are satisfied in you. And so, Father, as we worship now, would you just give us a picture of the joy that comes from knowing you and walking with you and having your spirit in us. Lord, would you fill this place with the joy that someday you won't be able to think about or see or hear anything else but the joy of the Lord. Lord, help us to be honest with this psalmist and say, does it seem like that? Can you show me? Can you you transform me to see what you see? Can Can you turn my heart to love the things that you love. Father, would you make us a people who can say with this psalmist at the end, there's nothing else besides you. Father, we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we stand and continue in